I've got good news and I've got bad news, girls. Good news is your podcast is here. Bad news is it's dead. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to another awesome week of Watch If You Dare, where we'll be discussing Night of the Creeps from 1986. And we have a guest with us this week. So, uh, my name is Evan Maurer, and I'm honored to be here, because uh, I think I'm your biggest fan so far, because I'm the only one who's listened to all the episodes. <laughs> Maybe our only one at this point. <laughs> but, uh, no, in all reality, it's uh, it's really nice to, to be able to join in, and uh, I've enjoyed all of the episodes, and like I've told Derek, I really like it because I don't have to watch the movies to find out about them, because a lot of these, like the last one you did, the autopsy of Jane Doe, or whatever her name was, not good. Yep. Don't yep, want to see that. <laughs> Don't want to see that. Yep, I'll be your guinea pig for you. You can yep. just live vicariously through me. Yep. So, y'all know us already. Um, this is Aaron Mansfield, and then my co-host is always my best bro, my JC to my Chris, this, the alfalfa <laughs> to my spanky is Derek. So true. But uh, yeah, so uh, I am Derek Daywan Smith, and we we have Evan on this week, and I am glad we we finally got him on because uh, Evan, I know you are like me when it comes to horror movies. You like horror and are interested in it, but at the same time, you don't necessarily like watching the movies. And uh, just to give a little bit of background to our listeners too. I've known Evan since high school, eleventh grade, tenth grade. Like, we yep. knew of each other, I think, before then, but I think it was, honestly, after Hurricane Katrina when you and I became really good friends, and uh, we've been, like, best bros ever since. And so, something we do on this show, Evan, is that anytime someone comes on, A, we like to ask them what they've been getting into lately that's horror-oriented or things that you like that are horror-related, and then we'll get into, like, maybe some fears and phobias, but to... Lead things off, since you're the guest, uh, have you gotten into anything horror-related lately? And if not, what are some of your past relationships with horror and things that you've liked or whatever? Yeah, so uh, I think the scariest thing that I have watched recently was the Super Bowl. But um, because <laughs> it was terrible. And that's not just coming from a butthurt Saints fan. That's coming from a, did we really only score a field goal, St. Louis? Or L.A. now, I guess. Yeah, that's rough. Uh, but in all reality, I haven't really um, looked at anything scary uh, lately, besides listening to y'all every week. No Coast to Coast? Because uh, I know you're also a Coast to Coast fan. I've given up. Well, not given up. I've taken a break from Coast to Coast, but I am listening if it's okay for me to talk about another podcast on this podcast. By know. all means. Yeah. yeah, we do. I've been listening a lot to Conspiracy Unlimited. And that is hosted by Richard Serrett, who is my favorite Canadian, and he is a fantastic host. And his guests on there make Coast to Coast look like children, because they are <laughs> the real deal. These guys and girls are better than I could ever be about trolling people about conspiracy theories, but they're serious. And it's fantastic. So it's like, I'm a real-life vampire, and I legit live the vampire lifestyle. Yeah, so one of the last episodes, uh, I think it plays every every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, he has a new episode. And one of the last ones I listened to was a woman who was convinced that she was being electronically controlled by the CIA, and that it, does no, it no longer takes implants to control people. It's all through electromagnetic waves. She was also a black belt in karate. And every time Richard would say, well, 
what did the CIA make you do? She was like, all kinds of stuff, Richard. Just really, really bad stuff. And he was like, yeah, okay, I get that. But, like, can you tell us some things that they made you do? Like, were you an operative? And she was like, oh, I was an operative, all right. Richard, just the whole 45 minutes, he was just like, yes, but what did you do? She was like, well, I, I went all over the world, Richard. I was all over the world. Yes, but okay. And then he just kind of gave up. Uh, <laughs> and, and she just kept saying uh, the phrase real time, real voice or something like that. And she was like, yeah, they can control what you say. And uh, yeah, it's great. And he had another guy on recently that was pretty much the same level of conspiracy theory uh, about chemtrails. And he kept asking Richard, that is this guy, his guest, how do they spray it in the air? And the guy just couldn't understand the question. So he kept saying, well, they spray it all around us, Richard, all around (laughs) us. But he was like, yes, thanks. But how? And it's hilarious. Yeah, it's good because every episode is, you know, it's something different. Uh, Lots of conspiracy theory stuff, lots of alien stuff. So I've been listening to that a lot. Uh, Listening to y'all's podcast, uh, last podcast on the left. uh, That's probably my extent of horror movies. And I actually did not watch the Super Bowl. And instead I watched this movie that we're about to talk about. So that was a better spending of my time. (laughs) For sure. Quick question before we move on. Um, the woman that he was talking to that was a CIA operative and all this, yes. like, did she work for the city? I have no idea. She could have. Did she take lots of vitamins? She might have. Oh, God did she, damn it. Did she battle, you, did she battle the robots? It took me a minute. No, well, she could have. We don't know because she never was able to tell us what the fuck she actually did while being controlled by the CIA. She did say that she got a divorce because of it, and I'm just thinking of her poor husband who's like, oh, God. I'm getting divorced, so, <laughs> and her excuse is I'm being magnetically controlled by the CIA. Weird moment of weird moment of synchronicity that you did that lame ass flaming lips joke. Uh, the flaming lips were that was like one of the first things Evan and I talked about with each other uh, when we were becoming friends in high school because that was like an album we bonded over because I think it was still relatively new when we we started becoming friends. Yeah, probably three yeah, or four years at the time it would have been. Yeah. So yeah, speaking of like conspiracy theories and spouses, um, the one thing that I do legitimately 100% buy into is the whole idea that like all these like mail off DNA testing kits are definitely like going to the government and they're using like pharmaceutical companies are using it to make uh, all these custom medicines and I have been convinced of that since day one and my wife has kind of casually like made fun of me for that guess who was right guess who was fucking right as of this week <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. that is definitely true on uh on that note uh have you gotten any, into anything horror related lately mansfield uh yeah so i got a couple things to mention real quick as far as comics because i know you and i both like to mention that marvel has kind of rebooted two of their older genre titles so they have journey into unknown worlds and Crypt of Shadows. They also rebooted uh, War is Hell. Ah, okay, cool. Um, so Crypt of Shadows is like straight horror related. That's like an old horror related comic that Marvel put out. The first story was kind of a Twilight Zone-esque, you were dead the whole time kind of twist. And um, Journey into Unknown Worlds is more sci-fi based, which Cullen Bunn did one of the stories there. And he's one of the guys that we have definitely mentioned on the podcast before. All the time. So those are both fun. And then as far as movies go, I watched Suspiria. 
So I mentioned that on the last episode uh, that it was about to come out. Well, I got my copy, watched it, fucking loved it. And I completely understand where a lot of people's concerns are with that movie. It is long. It has a lot of subtitles. It doesn't always kind of make sense with what it's doing in the moment. There is lots of background stuff that maybe muddies kind of some of the message of the movie. Um, There's lots of, like, Bader-Meinhof stuff going on in the background. And there's lots of backstory that's implied to some of the characters that's never 100% explained. That makes you kind of wonder, how does this stuff tie in? What's the director trying to say? Blah, blah, blah. So I get that, like, a lot of people find the plot to be convoluted and it's overlong, which... It's, it's long, but I could have sat and watched it twice in a row. It was fucking gorgeous. The soundtrack in context was amazing. I think this is the first movie I've ever seen Dakota Johnson in that she was good. Tilda Swinton was fucking amazing. And she actually plays three roles, which I was not expecting. I knew she played two, but she plays three roles in the movie. It was great. It was fantastic. I loved it. Definitely want to watch it again. Heather and I tried to watch it together, and she got like 45 minutes in and just had to go zonk out because it was late so we're definitely going to pick that one back up we are for sure probably going to do original suspiria versus the remake down the line so yeah it would be we kind of talked about that a long time ago but it would be a fun double feature just to do both because they both are very different tonally but for all the like complaints that you hear people say about oh yeah well he just took the bare framework of it just this you know, dance school in Europe that's controlled by witches, and that's it. Nothing is the same. No, there's lots of similarities. I think the story even resolves in exactly the same way. Ultimately, it just gets there by a different means. But there are even characters that are completely, like, lifted and named the same names and everything else. I think it's very close to the plot of the original movie. The problem is, the original movie is Argento, so it's just fucking bananas. And so the plot is 100% secondary to all the aesthetics of the movie and the atmosphere and all the weirdness, right? But this movie takes what little plot there is and just 100% uses it. It just recontextualizes it. Gotcha. Um, But I think it's a much closer remake than people give it credit for. The other movie that I want to mention real quick, I heard about this on Shockwaves, so I'll give credit to them. It is an Indian horror movie called Tomb Bad, and it was described as... Clive Barker's There Will Be Blood, but in India. (laughs) Hmm. Sold. It's kind of bananas. Like, the best I can explain it is that there's, like, a village that was cursed by this demon, and it's a demon from, like, the beginning of time that got its complete fill of all the world's riches and gold, and then it wanted all the world's, like, food, and the mother spirit was like, no, you can't have all the food. So the cast-out demon is just perpetually hungry, but, like, has all these resources. So the village that's cursed is, like, cursed with the, like, keeping of this demon. So the village has all these wealth and riches, but they're just, like, fundamentally fucked from the beginning. But it's basically just about this one guy's quest to, like, obtain that wealth to an obsessive level that it just consumes his life um, very much in the way that it does in There Will Be Blood. He even has, like, a giant red mustache like uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. But talk about some imagery that I have never seen before and some weird concepts that I don't think I've ever seen. 
Like, he literally crawls into the womb of the World Mother and draws a magic circle, and he has to bring, like, a weird bred human, like, doll with him, and he has to distract the demon with that doll because it's hungry from not getting all the food, and then he sneaks it behind it and just, like, rips all this gold out of its fanny pack and then has to pick up all the gold coins and get up out of this, you know, womb cavern before it can catch him. Like, it's ludicrous. Fucking what? <laughs> Yeah, but it was at least really interesting. It is on Amazon Prime. It's there. It's free. I mean, it's free, essentially. It's with Prime. You don't have to, like, pay to rent it. Definitely weird. I at least can say that I've seen an Indian horror movie now. It sounds less like There Will Be Blood and more like Mario. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. Kind of, you uh, you have a point there. I can yes. see where you're seeing that. Yeah, I would yeah. see that more as a Mario adventure. It's, it's like Mario, but if Mario and Luigi, when they were kids, they had to feed their, like, old, decrepit great-grandma who, like, had her jaw nailed shut. Correct. And then, like, Luigi fell off a, like, wall and died in the first hour. And, yeah, and, I mean, Bowser, and Bowser was a hell demon. Yeah, it's pretty much yeah. what happened. And Peach is the world mother. So. Yeah, so that's all I have to mention this week. What about you, Derek? Uh, I up- had updated my iPhone, and for whatever reason, the the podcast app decided to re-download a whole bunch of old episodes on a couple podcasts I was subscribed to. So I was going through them and deleting some some old episodes on certain podcasts, and I got to last podcast, which I'm also subscribed to. And speaking of last podcast, Evan, you had mentioned them earlier. And I was going through and I was just deleting the ones that I've listened to. And kind of halfway through it, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I want to re-listen to some of these because I haven't listened to them since they originally came out. One of the series that stuck out in my mind the most was um, the one on Dennis Nilsson, who was basically like Britain's Jeffrey Dahmer. That guy was a total nutcase. Um, Forgot all about his crimes and what what happened with him. Kind of one of the things that stands out in my mind when I was watching Night of the Creeps, and I am jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the things that Henry would say on their episodes on that guy was when he would have like a moment of lucidity where he'd like look around at what he was doing with like all the body parts and go, this is ridiculous. And that's kind of like (laughs) there was a moment in Night of the Creeps where I stopped and did the same thing. This is ridiculous. I'm sorry. I was going to say my my favorite thing about Dennis Nielsen uh, and his whole story is when he just started losing touch with any sense of how to cover it up and would just blatantly burn bodies in his backyard. Yeah. And and, and he had teenagers come over and they're like, what are you doing? Burning a body? And he was like, yeah. (laughs) And then just laugh for like two minutes as they walked away. That seems to happen a lot because, like, there's also what happened with Ed Gein where, like, someone cracked a joke. What do you got in there? A dead body? You don't want to? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Like, that That was just Ed Gein yes. for, th- for three minutes just staring creepy and just be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, see you around, Ed. <laughs> Bye. Anytime you ask that question and the answer is a laugh that lasts more than three seconds, you should ask yourself a question. <laughs> but uh, then also, too, I've, I'm still deep in Resident Evil 2, the remake. Um, I beat Leon's first scenario run. Then I'm going to play Claire's sec- uh, first scenario run. Then I'm going to go back and play both of their second scenario runs. And I I still, I'm loving every minute of it. They, they just 
crushed it with the remake on Resident Evil 2. Just one other thing I wanted to mention is for whatever reason, the last two nights, I've decided to go to the gym like late night, like after 10 p.m., 11 p.m. The way to the gym from my house, uh, you have to go down a road that doesn't have any really like street lights on it. So it, it really is just like you see the highway and there are trees on either side of you. And so something that kind of happened to me was like I put in some music. My playlist has never done this, but it just decided to play the most like dark music I have on my phone. It would go from like butthole surfers to like the weird early Primus shit, more butthole surfers to Rob Zombie. So on the way to and from the gym, like in this pitch black darkness, you know, I just switch it from like butthole surfers into dig through the ditches and burn through the witches. It's like, <laughs> so uh, I wanted to mention that too, because yeah, I, I've been listening to some, uh, oh, also to like Allison Chain's angry chair came on, which is kind of a weird song to listen to when you're in a weird headspace, like out on the road after midnight. And um, that's kind of been my, my foray into um, horror along with reading some comics, but I'm trying not to always talk about comics every week. If I could mention two things real quick. One, Rob Zombie is my playlist after leaving from sixth grade or hell every day. And <laughs> two, I just thought about this, and I think it would fit the category. I just finished a book called Relic, and uh, it was suggested to me by a science teacher, actually. It's a big series, but Relic is the first book, and it takes place in this huge uh, natural history museum. And something. Wait, is this the book that the movie The Relic was based on? I didn't see The Relic. Okay, well, keep going. Okay, so uh, basically it takes place in this huge museum and something keeps just murking the shit out of people, like ripping their heads off, and they have no idea what it is, and they just think it's a serial killer that is, like, living in the museum, and as they research more, this, like, really eccentric FBI agent comes into the fold, and then uh, they basically are like, oh, wait, yep, that's just a monster that we didn't know existed. And it's living on our brains. Yeah, no, that, that that's totally just the novel that the movie The Relic was based on, which that movie is not great. It came out in a time where you had, like, you had Mimic and The Relic, and you had, like, several, like, creature feature movies kind of all happening at the same time. Interesting. See, I, it was totally related. I didn't even know it. That uh, that that book is the first series in the Preston Child series, and apparently all those books are really good. But I I have Relic on my bookshelf. It's like in my stack of books. I I, I want to read because it was recommended to me as well. Yep, it was good. But yeah, so again, before we dive in the movie, another thing we do here on the show is we discuss fears and phobias or creepy tales. Um, Evan, do you have any that you want to share with us? Uh, I have so many creepy stories that it, we would have to have an entire podcast dedicated to that. Which <laughs> which ones do you want to hear? Do you want to hear the ghost stories, the alien stories? Let's do an alien story. Yeah. We haven't had yeah. an alien story. And yet. I know yeah. I know you have you have a irrational fear of like aliens and yes, abduction. I do. So there you go. And I think my irrational fear is actually rational because I'm 100% certain that I was abducted by aliens once, possibly multiple times. Fuck yes. All right. Let's let's hear it. Yeah. So ever since I was a kid, I had this weird, and it wasn't a dream. It's not a dream, and I still have it sometimes. It's like when you're daydreaming and you kind of just drift off into other thoughts. But I always have this same one, and it's from the perspective of like third person hovering above me. So like it's an event that actually happened in my life, but I am seeing it 
from above as if I was like in a helicopter looking down on everything that happens. And every time I talk about it with my parents or whoever was present at the time, they're like, yeah, I specifically remember that event. But I then tell them that I saw it all and my memory of it is from above. And they're like, what are you on? Uh, hate to break it to you, bro, but that totally sounds like disassociation just saying (laughs) so that was like my first kind of foray into it and you know i listen to coast to coast because my dad listened to coast to coast maybe it has something to do with that i legitimately think that i have been abducted because if you read any of whitley streber's books uh who is a very famous for whatever you think his stories are worth true or not a reporter and abductee People have these third-person experiences all the time, and it is a result of a repressed memory, uh, and that is how the aliens repress your memory by implanting a new one, but they don't realize that the point of view is different, Uh, so it's kind of like a glitch in their reprogramming. Also, electronics do not work the way they are supposed to for people who have been abducted, and by our hour and a half before this podcast of me trying to get my Chromebook to work, I think we all know that that is true well and all kidding aside since i've known you uh, for a while for whatever reason listeners i can attest to that electronics like brand new electronics even will fuck up for no reason around you and you're like you and sean mars are the only two people i know that that happens and well so maybe sean's been abducted too but i know <laughs> for a fact that happened has, that has happened to you quite oh, absolutely and I'm, I'm talking like not just like oh it doesn't work the way it should like All of the time, I will try and open the Netflix app on our TV, and it will not open for me. And then my wife touches the controller, doesn't even press the button, and Netflix opens. And I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks, aliens. Also, the other really, this is a sound proven fact that no one has been able to give me answers to. About four years ago, I went and got my eyes checked because I was noticing that I was having a harder and harder time seeing at night when I was driving. So when I went there, they were like, did you ever have some kind of like accident with your eyes? And I was like, no, I'm good. And they're like, okay, because there's like these two scars on the back of your eyeballs and they're identical. And we don't know how anything would scar the back of your eyeballs. And I was like, yeah, I do. Aliens. (laughs) Because it happened. And uh, I went for a second opinion to another optometrist. And they said the same thing. They were like, oh, well, we don't have an explanation for that. That's weird. Here's some glasses. And I think I remember hearing a clip either from Coast Coast or reading something like one of the things that have been reported with um, people who claim to be abducted and then they like will get a medical exam and something weird will pop up on there. I think I remember reading or hearing somewhere that scars behind either one or both eyes is like a telltale sign of an abduction. Yep. It is another very common occurrence. Uh, as far as people who have been abducted or think they have been. I don't know if it's aliens, but I know someone took me, and they did not have my permission, and they did experiments. Or, I mean, and the, the, the thing that could be just as fucking creepy, if it is an aliens, is it's your brain subconsciously, or collective unconsciousness, whatever you want to call it, made it so real that it, it might as well have just happened to you. Correct. So, so, like, either way, it's just, like, because, so we, we had this discussion on the Jane Doe episode where, um, with ghosts, and whether or not it's actual ghost or it's your own brain fucking with you, either way, it's still terrifying, because both, like, both those options are terrifying. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's 
physically real. A lot of people think the alien experience as a whole is actually in another plane of existence. It's something that is not physical, only that it manifests to you somehow that other people cannot perceive, which is why a lot of people who have sightings or these experiences with them can have them in a house that has three other people living in it and no one else sees anything that happens. And a lot of people actually, going back to Whitley Strieber, have reported that these aliens that they have come in contact with can actually walk through solid surfaces, almost like a ghost. So that kind of lends itself to maybe they're not of this physical realm. So if anybody is listening and they want to know more about my alien experiences, I'd be happy to converse with them. Um, (laughs) Because uh, the truth is out there and we will find it one day. All right. So there you go, guys. It's our our second guest. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm kidding. No, I I always loved uh, discussing conspiracy theories with you. Whether or not it's actually aliens, uh, I still do believe that something happened to you, whether it's your own mind doing this, creating these memories, or uh, it really is aliens. Also, I'm kind of mad that I'm the second guest. Well, to be fair... The first one was my wife. It was his wife. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so... That's okay, uh, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so speaking of aliens, Night of the Creeps kind of deals with that. But bef- uh, one last thing, kind of right up top before I forget about it. Watch If You Dare has been getting some love from other podcasts. Yay. There have been a couple that have reviewed uh, us on iTunes as well, which thank you so much for doing that. Thanks a bunch. One pa- podcast in particular I wanted to shout out because um, they are planning on shouting us out. Um, they are called the Grave Girls Podcast can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. They have a Twitter at grave underscore girls. It's uh, hosted by three women who talk like horror movies and how they relate to like true crime cases or other like scary stories. Yeah, so they are all about horror in every facet of it. So, um, and from what I've heard, I really have enjoyed. So um, thank you for shouting us out and I hope to continue to follow you and maybe uh, Mansfield and Evan too big thanks i am actually adding y'all to my podcast feed right now but yeah so speaking of aliens we are doing night of the creeps the night of the formal is finally here for chris cindy and jc it's going to be the best night of their lives but tonight is also the night of the creeps from a world unknown comes a nightmare unimagined. First, they are under you, around you, on you, and then inside you. They get in through your mouth, and you walk around while they incubate, even if you're dead. They are a new breed of terror. They are a different kind of horror. Zombies, exploding heads, creepy crawlies. We could have a little problem. The creeps are taking over. Oh, I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. You have never had a night like this. Night of the creeps. If you scream, you're dead.
It is a 1986 science fiction horror comedy movie directed by Fred Decker, who also happens to be the guy who co-wrote and directed Monster Squad, and he's done a whole bunch of other random things since then. Episodes of Tales from the Crypt. He did Star Trek Enterprise. He actually co-wrote, which I didn't know this, Mansfield. You probably knew about this. He co-wrote the newest Predator movie from last year. Yeah, so he's he's best buds with Shane Black. And, you know, he had a good early run with writing House. And then he ended up doing... Night of the Creeps, and Monster Squad, and Robocop 3. I believe Black worked on this movie that we're doing, and then he definitely worked on Monster Squad. Um, And yeah, he went on to do Ricochet and some Tales from the Crypt episodes back in the day. But he's kind of been in Hollywood jail since then for no real reason other than Robocop 3 is just bad. But it it was co-written with Frank Miller, so I'm going to put a little bit of the blame on Frank Miller because as great, like historically as great as Frank Miller is to comics, he is also a little nutty and sometimes his writing isn't the best, so... But yeah, he he kind of got pulled back in by Black for this new Predator movie, which it was fun, but it's nothing that we're going to do on this podcast, if I'm being honest. It had some script issues. I think the performances were fine. The special effects were fine until the big giant Predator shows up that's entirely CGI and then I kind of checked out. But um, yeah, Decker has been around for a long time and supposedly he's done script polishes on all kinds of shit that he's not necessarily credited for. He's just kind of one of these guys that people who know him will just kind of slide their scripts over and let him kind of do touch-ups and, you know, hand it right back. Yeah. It's a great throwback to like old school 50s kind of sci-fi horror pulpy stuff. There's lots of fun in this movie. Great central character relationships. Um, really good practical special effects that are a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a solid little fun time. Yeah. And it seems like it, it's come, become a cult classic like over the years. Definitely. Yeah. I remember, I remember watching this one on cable a lot growing up. It was on USA pretty consistently. So I remember even from a young age, it was on all the time through the nineties. Yeah. And the, the cast is mostly unknown and they didn't, and some of them didn't really do much else beyond this movie. The standouts are Tom Atkins. Yes. Uh, by far. He, and he's probably what the most, he's probably by far the most famous. He's the cast. biggest person in this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Tom Atkins and then Jill Whitlow is the one who also is praised a lot for this movie, but really all the leads, uh, are, they're all good they're all good yeah. but yeah it's an earnest attempt at a b movie it has elements of zombies slasher movies sci- and then sci-fi alien invasion stories um all kind of mixed into one and even though it sounds like it's a lot to juggle it does it pretty well also handles comedy very well um which i was not expecting i thought the goofiest movie we would watch on this podcast would have been an american werewolf in london but i think this one might take the cake but before we kind of dive in a scene by scene and get into spoilers um we'll get some kind of general thoughts so that way anyone who does want to watch night of the creeps um, before they listen to our scene by scene they can stop here or stop after we do general analysis and watch it and then come back but uh i'll start since we have our guest evan uh evan what are your thoughts just generally about this movie like horror wise and just as a movie yeah so let me be totally honest i'm planning on being a permanent fixture on this podcast so i already thought about my whole spiel for this so i'm gonna rate each movie with winners and losers 
that being characters, but then also with a one to five star of palate cleanser, meaning how awfully scary was this? <laughs> how many palate cleansing things do you have to watch to make sure that you'll be able to sleep at night? And I was actually very surprised and pleasantly surprised that this gets a one out of five on the palate cleanser, and that's only for some minor uh, details if you don't like insects and slug-like creatures uh, and slight gore. But other than that, you're good. You can go to sleep right after this. In fact, I did. But I'll get into winners and losers as we talk about it. But there are some good ones. What about you, Mansfield? What are your thoughts? So we specifically picked this movie kind of as a palate cleanser (laughs) because the last two that we've done are pretty heavy. Kill List is definitely a dark movie. Yeah. Um, And Scanners, Scanners is not necessarily like super dark. It's just kind of a like really straightforward, dry, serious movie. So we kind of wanted to break it up and do something that's fun. But overall, yeah, I love this movie. I definitely remember watching this growing up. It was on USA constantly beyond some of the gore and some like very brief nudity that can be edited for TV. This movie was very accessible um, on cable growing up. So I remember watching it and loving it. This is one of those movies where the college kids are all college kid age which when you're younger, you can kind of see them and relate to that a little bit easier. Um, It's not like a bunch of 40-year-olds who are like, oh, Becky, uh, we're in college, and they're clearly, you know, 40. But the the effects are fun, the action's fun, this movie has a ton of solid one-liners, um, again, thanks Shane Black for that. But overall, yeah, I've, I've always had a good affection for this movie. Yeah, and this was actually my first go-around with this movie as well. And <clears throat> like Evan, you were kind of saying, it's not particularly too scary. There are some visuals that are a little, uh, that are pretty creepy. There is, there's some heavy gore in this movie. Yeah. But not necessarily like a ton of sp- spook scares there's not a lot of like intense heavy heavy stuff and even the gore so like everything about this movie is over the top like if i had yeah. to pick one way to describe it i'd say over the top even the gore is kind of goofy like in that 80s aesthetic way but there are like jump scares but they're kind of again over the top and goofy they're not necessarily scary i mean if you if zombies scare you then yeah maybe this movie will get under your skin more than it did any of us but honestly i had a great time watching this i had a blast never felt any dread like i have done with pretty much almost any other movie we've watched never had any moments where i was creeped out it was just it was fun so if you're looking for something scary this is not the one to start off with but if you're looking for just kind of something that's different and wacky and over the top then this is a good one i give it a thumbs up myself so moving on from there we will get into the movie and go scene by scene and and just kind of talk things over so and the opening scenes were not at all what I was expecting. Nope. <laughs> like... So before you get to the story, I will say I love the opening credits to this movie. I love the font. I love the colors. Yeah. I love that it scrolls backwards. It scrolls like upward instead of downward. Um, yep. The music over it's great. Like I love the opening credits to this movie. But then, yeah, like you're getting to it just immediately cuts to not what you're expecting. 
Yeah. Yep. Well, and I was going to say, too, in those opening credits, like, I wrote down, does 80s horror have, like, the best soundtracks ever? Because I swear, every movie that we've done from the 80s that has actual music in it, the music is banging. I love it. I just, I love that whole synth wave sort of, yeah. <laughs> like, thing they do. It is definitely electric piano is is what's going on. Yeah, there's, there's lots of synthesizer and there's lots of theremin on this soundtrack as well, which is all, again, great throwbacks to... The stuff that it's riffing on. So, this opening scene, which is honestly one of the most memorable scenes of the movie, only because I was not expecting it whatsoever, you get cut to inside a spaceship where there are these aliens, and from what you can infer, one of them has, like, an experiment in their hands, and they're trying to escape with it, and the other aliens are shooting at them. And when I say aliens, I mean this spaceship looks like they did 80s to the max with, like the aesthetic of the spaceship the costume design of the of the aliens almost to the point where like you can tell it's not a real person it's like a rubber doll or whatever but i think they did that on purpose so i believe it's actually like kids i think it's young kids in rubber suits and that's why they kind of like move the way that they do but the set in and of itself is scaled down i know that for sure so it's either kids or it's little people um, under the suits. But you're right. This is like a weird extra hallway from Alien, from the Nostromo, that like just wasn't used. And there are these grubby little pink naked alien people running around. Shooting lasers at each other. Shooting laser beams, <laughs> yeah. yes. And and the thing that tripped me up too was the soundtrack went from like that synthwave 80s vibe. And when it goes into this, it almost sounds like Star Wars. <laughs> like It's like a Star Wars battle and it's like a bombastic kind of soundtrack so the alien carrying this mysterious container reaches like an escape pod and jettisons it out into space it's like a canister that he's been carrying yeah and the alien's eyes are all like whited over so he's definitely like in a different zone from the other two that are chasing him and the two that are chasing him, there are su- uh, subtitles, and like they're basically like, oh shit, he just released the experiment out into space. I love the double subtitles. I love that yeah. you like, <laughs> yes. see the English, and then you see the alien language on top of that. Yeah, right. yeah. so that's how the movie starts. And from there, it then goes into black and white, and you find out that it's taking place in 1959. I really did like this the way they did this because I did read early on that uh, Decker wanted to make the whole movie in black and white. I don't know if it was the studio who had him make the edits or not. I'm glad the whole movie isn't in black and white, but I really did appreciate how the flashback to 1959 is in black and white, except when it's on the spacecraft. The spacecraft is colored. Yeah, this this is one of those few examples of when the studio is correct. Yes, because in 1959, the aliens are still advanced enough not to be in black and white. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of what it, like, honestly, though, that's kind of like what you infer from that that transition. Yep. It, It has a very Wizard of Oz feel to it, which I like, because this prologue being black and white and then go into the 80s in color where, you know, when the movie came out, I think works really well. So we cut to the uh, to 1959 and we're on frat row, sorority row of a college. Everyone is like 
a walking 1950s cliche. You have this guy rolling up to get his girlfriend and like he's wearing a letterman jacket and all the sorority girls are wearing like those poodle skirts and everything and they it's kind of nice too because you also hear like on the radio like a criminal a criminally insane mental patient escaped what is basically arkham asylum they're like stay off the roads because he's going down route blah 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 and so the movie starts off with a, a college guy picking up his date from sorority row and they go out to like a makeout spot basically while they're there they see something fall out of the sky and crash so they decide they're gonna go investigate so they drive over there and again over the top acting the guy is just acting like a total douchebag but in a very 1950s way like greaser way or yeah he's he's just stereotypical college bro one thing to mention is that when they were at the hangout spot a police officer is going around and tapping on the car windows to tell people like hey there's a maniac out there like you need to go home and when he gets to their car there's this moment of just like whoa whoa what and it's his ex-girlfriend which you kind of hear the other sorority sisters talking about in the background but they recently broke up um so the girl and this police officer used to date, and now he has run into her with her new boyfriend. And you can tell he's kind of shook by it, and he just kind of says, all right, you know, leave, go home. After the meteor crashes, they go off after it. Yeah, so <laughs> the guy brilliantly decides, I'm going to go into the forest and look at this crash site. And uh, for whatever reason, the girl stays in the car. As the radio report is playing, once again, criminally insane, mental patient, armed and dangerous, going down whatever highway that they are on it it like cuts to like one of the uh highway signs and it shows like route 64 or whatever that's the same one said on the radio so these two things happen simultaneously and they are two almost separate horror tropes the one is the guy going and investigating the crash site which turns out to be that canister container you saw that the alien jettisoned out of space and as he goes up to it it's a very split second sort of thing it might be a little bit of a jump scare for some didn't really bother me too much but a slug-like thing just comes out of the canister and goes right into his mouth then at the same time and these scenes are kind of cutting back and forth a little bit at the same time the woman in the car is like calling out to him like to come back to the car so they can leave and you see in the background of the shot the mental patient with an axe like slowly walk making his way towards the car and it's like a slasher movie and honestly that one is much creepier of the two because the way it's shot like you never see his face you just see like his outline and when it's like the camera is facing the car like one side of the car that she's looking towards you see him coming in the background towards her he gets right up on her and he brings up his axe and goes to swing and it cuts to black and then immediately goes to 27 years later in 1986 so let me break in here Derek I marked this down as one of my first biggest losers of the movie and that was for this unfortunate sorority girl because she knew that something really bad was going to happen and after she hears the radio report that this dude is basically right behind you with an axe uh, she screams out to her boyfriend I'll even let you fondle my breasts if you come home now and she still couldn't get him to save her life so I marked that down as biggest loser. <laughs> that line, I totally forgot about that because that line cracked me up when I, like, because yep. she says it so, like, earnestly. This movie knows what it's doing. Yep, yeah. it's fantastic. Like, such a deadpan earnesty to it. Like, 
again, this movie is just filled with moments of like, well, that wasn't what I was expecting. So we cut to 27 years later and it is the same. You can see that it's the same college. It's just kind of modernized. And again, we are on frat row, sorority row, just kind of the Greek life area of this place. And this is where you're introduced to two characters named Chris and JC. On that note, let's talk about names real quick. Um, So the college is called Corman University, as in Roger Corman. Chris, our main character, his last name is Romero, as in George Romero. JC is James Carpenter Hooper. And then our female lead is Cynthia Cronenberg. So these are all clearly (laughs) like horror movie creators. Um, Some of the other characters are Cameron, Landis, Raimi, Minor. Um, So these are all prominent horror movie directors. So typically this is kind of corny when it's done in other movies. And I've seen this done multiple times. This is the only movie in which I like this goofy little play. Yeah, and when I was in the middle of watching it, because it, it was subtle enough to where like it took me a second to realize what like what was going on. And I think w- what happened was when you're introduced to Cynthia and you find out her last name is Cronenberg, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's why yeah. I'm recognizing all these last names. Um, I get it. So you're introduced to Chris and JC, and at least, I don't know about you two, but JC is like arguably the MVP of the movie next to the detective who we're not introduced to yet, but JC is like the coolest bro friend ever and i liked him a lot like he was yeah. he was arguably my favorite character J- jc's a true bro yeah he was a great character it's also just nice like if we're talking about representation in a movie which is something that we really heavily talk about now but the fact that he's just casually disabled right like yep. he's he's got crutches you know he has something going on they don't make it clear in the movie but that's what's nice about it they don't draw any attention to it beyond that so that's just an interesting thing to like throw in there just because yeah and uh it's it's funny too because like chris actually he's the one who kind of like is trying to work up the courage to go and talk to cynthia who is um a shorty girl and she's kind of like mingling with her friends and some of the frat guys and like chris and jc are off to the side from afar and chris is just like oh i think i'm in love but I'm too scared to go talk to her. And JC's like, look, dude, I'm never getting laid, period. So it's my mission to get you laid. Like, just go up and talk to her. He never does. So JC decides to go up and talk to her. It's funny because he talks pretty good game. and But he does it for the benefit of his friend. Because, like, he kind of goes up to Cynthia and is like, yeah, my friend Chris over there, you know, the, the handsome guy, he's really attracted to you, blah, blah, blah. And for a second, she's kind of, like, going along with it um, before, like, this meathead guy who has a unibrow who you think is her boyfriend walks up and is like, bro, like there was no phone call for me. Cause he gets the guy to go like check on a phone call or something. And so they decide like after the, like, so JC kind of leaves and goes back to Chris and is just like, the good news is she knows who you are now. The bad news is you, we might need to join a frat. So it cuts to like them going to this frat called the Beta Epsilon Fraternity. They're already at this frat. They're like at like a big like beginning of the semester kind of party. Yeah, it's Pledge Week. Um, You see on one of the signs that it's Pledge Week. And immediately like as far as the atmosphere of this movie goes, there's so much fucking color 
and neon and just like all this other stuff going on that I really, really love. Like it really sets the atmosphere of this movie. And there's constantly just like lots of neon in the background. Um, secondly, as soon as we kind of cut to them meeting with all these frat bros to talking about you know wanting to join up, so many mullets. Oh yeah. <laughs> so many yes. like massive 80s ridiculous mullets. And I love that one guy and he he pops up in the background constantly throughout the movie, but I love that like one fucking dude with a mullet and just that rad 80s mustache and he's just kind of one of the featured frat bros that's in it, but that guy is probably the only guy that you would actually like be able to stand to hang around in that <laughs> frat. Yep. I think he comes up towards the end. Is he I'm pretty sure he's the one loading people onto the bus with the mullet and uh mustache? Yeah. But that also reminds me, like, this this whole scene initially with them, like, hanging out on campus and hanging out this frat. Like, the two main characters definitely remind me of kind of how our friend group was. We weren't, like, massive social outcasts by any means at all. But we also weren't, like, complete frat jock Greek life people, right? Like, that wasn't our friend group. But that said, there's this one time that we went to one of the house parties that was right off campus and this was kind of at the like artsy fartsy super hipster kind of hangout house and I just remember all of us hanging out and hearing some girl like yelling and complaining about all of us being a bunch of meatheads looking for sweater meat and it just kind of killing us because we were we were completely like not the kind of frat bros that she was playing us up to be like we just weren't dressed as super hipsters at this party yeah i do remember that it was kind of like we were caught in between a rock and a hard place well and that's the thing too is because like whereas chris is kind of a baby uh at least in these scenes jc like he's a charming guy like you can tell he can like sell salt to a slug like he is he can talk to anybody like you get that feeling like he can just go up to anybody and start an interesting conversation and even if the conversation goes poorly he's good enough to talk his way out of it too so yeah so they are at this this uh frat and so kind of cuts to like later on in the night and the frat bros have the two of them like downstairs in their basement area and this is when you're introduced to the bradster who is (laughs) who's the president of this fraternity the bradster is like the fucking epitome of the Trumpian nightmare. Yep. Like that that is what he is completely. I marked him down as biggest winner of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cuz he is like he is like the most alpha alpha bro ever. Like he has like blonde hair. He just acts like a total douchebag. Um his name is Brad and he calls himself the Bradster. His license plate on his Mustang says Bradster. Yeah, yeah. So they basically kind of bring them downstairs, and you can tell that like they're just kind of fucking around with Chris and JC, being like, "Oh yeah, sure, you can join us if you do this thing for us." Yeah, okay, wink, wink. They're not gonna join us. We're just making fools out of them. And so they're like, "Okay, you want to join us? We want you to steal a cadaver from the medical, the university medical center, and deposit it on the steps of." this other fraternity that we're rivals with. This is kind of ridiculous because, A, what fucking university center just that's not like a medical school has just frozen bodies? That's almost to a word the note that I wrote down, which was like, the fuck does this school have an underground super science lab for? Yeah. Also, there are literally nuclear waste barrels just like stacked up in the corner with a giant like nuclear yeah. center. So I'm like, what kind of facility is this just 
just casually is a multi-gajillion dollar facility just, you know, under the, like, same building where they teach English. Yeah, no one would suspect it. That's why it's there. And there there are so many moments of, like, right place, right time, uh, too, like, where people who are, if they would have been caught in this scene, like, it would have been bad, but they just kind of walk right by and get to where they need to go, because it cuts to JC and Chris going to this lab and there's like a grad student there like in a lab coat and he can't get into the secret room that needs like a key card or a keypad and so he goes and like calls on the nearby phone like and he calls just someone else being like hey man like what's what's the passcode again I, I don't remember like it's not working for me and so he starts like talking with this guy on the phone which who is that actor that that plays him because i've seen that guy in a million things yeah he's in a lot of stuff yeah so that's that's david Paymer. He is one of those, like, that guy actors. He's been in, like, probably close to 200 movies. Like, he has a shit ton of credits. But he's just one of those guys with a face and a good voice, and he's in tons and tons of shit. Yep. Also, this scene in particular made me go, man, I wish we still had payphones. Because there's something about putting a coin in a phone that makes a phone call more important. Yeah, I have a note about that later in the movie because the sorority house keeps getting calls on their payphone. They just have a fucking payphone right, downstairs right. in the middle of the hallway and people keep, like, it keeps ringing and somebody will have to pick up an answer and then just yell for whoever the person is that the phone calls for. Correct. <laughs> so, yeah, like, it. oh, oh boy. I guarantee you that's how it was. Oh, yeah. I guarantee you that's how it was for a long time in, in frats and sororities, like, in the 80s. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, because, like, so many problems in this movie could be like, oh, yeah, this wouldn't be a problem today because cell phones yeah. lol. Yep. No, yeah, this is a dated movie. This is an 80s movie, and there are problems where, like, you need to use a payphone. So, while this guy is on the on the phone trying to get the passcode, Chris and JC just kind of, like, stroll in. They go down, like, walk downstairs. They get into the basement area, and they reach this door where there's... You need to enter in a key, uh, passcode. And so, JC is just like, that's probably something shady. Let's check in there. And... Chris is like, oh, come on, man. Like, no, we don't We don't even know the code. And he hits a zero, and the door opens, and then, like, it cuts to, an, like, the scene of the grad student. And he's like, wait, zero's the last number in the code? Because he had entered in, like, three of the digits, but he didn't know what the last one was, and it was zero. <laughs> so it opens up for these two idiots. And they uh, they kind of just stroll in, and I love the aesthetic of this lab because it is, like, the most 1950s Star Trek Enterprise bullshit i've ever seen in my life yeah it's fantastic it's just lots of cardboard and like lighted panels yep it's just lighted multicolored like huge plastic buttons everywhere yeah like doodads and all that shit yep and so they're kind of like fucking around and they click one button and it's like it shows this kind of tube where a guy is cryogenically frozen and they even take a moment to like yeah like cryogenics like you know that thing where like you suspend somebody in animation and like freeze them and you can wake them up like years later and i love how like people because it happens two or three times that's when we were like they stop kind of almost like they're looking at the camera to explain what cryogenics is because maybe in the 80s it was not nearly like as big of a thing or maybe it's just doing it on purpose to be tongue-in-cheek probably both so chris is like no nah, uh-uh we need to like get the fuck out of here now and jc's like no nah, no nah, here we go here's our corpse like we found him and so he hits a big red button on the wall that says like abort or something like that it says disengage, disengage. Yeah, giant red button yes 
this was my favorite part about that scene is that they have this huge fucking secret lab, like we said, in a nondescript college location with a dude who's been cryogenically frozen since 1950. And there's just a huge button that says disengage. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. And I love that. Yeah. Chris is just like, we need to go. We need to get out here. And JC's just like, hold Hold on, I mm, uh, got this with my crutch. Up oh, there we go, disengage. Yep. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, never good, never good. <laughs> yeah, so this body, like, comes out. You can tell right away that it's the same guy from earlier in the movie, from the 50s, the guy who had that thing jump in his mouth, and it, he's been on ice for a while. And so they're like, all right, well, we got our body. Then the body just kind of randomly grabs one of them, and they freak out screaming and run the fuck away as the medical student is, like, coming back to the lab. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? So the medical student walks into the lab. He sees the the corpse on the ground. He's just like, those stupid ass fucking kids. Like, and he's going down like, let me get this thing back in there. And it does the horror trope of like, as he's reaching down, the body comes alive and... Like, something shoots out of its mouth and goes into the med student, and you can kind of infer that, like, he's dead now. After they, like, run the fuck out of the lab, they go back to their dorm. Because that's, I guess that's what you would do as, like, a college yeah. kid, right? You yeah. just go back yeah. to, like, your spot, right? So they go back to their dorm, and they're, like, still kind of freaking out about what just happened. And Chris is just kind of being mopey and, like, whining about everything. And JC drops, like, the fucking realest-ass monologue ever where he's just like, look, I bust my ass to make sure, like, that you're happy as a friend or as your friend and blah, blah, blah. Like, he just goes into Chris and just kind of drops a reality bomb on him that is one of the best pieces of dialogue in the entire movie. It was honestly one of the best monologues I've heard in a very long time because that fucking, like, I'm your friend, I love you, but because I love you, I'm going to call you out on your bullshit speech was, like, on point. Yeah. Yeah. I just made a correlation, and it's the fact that JC is on crutches, and he is Chris's crutch. Totally. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's really what... And I think he kind of even alludes to that in that, that monologue, because even he kind of goes into, like, like love you as a friend, and, like, I'm having a great time, and you're sitting there being mopey, and, like, look at the two of us. Your life's totally fine, bro. Like, get the fuck over yourself. So then it cuts to probably, arguably, the other best character in this movie besides JC, Detective Ray Cameron. And the way we're introduced to him is interesting, because it starts off in a dream state, and it shows him walking towards a car, and it's the same car from earlier in the 50s that the woman was in, and it just shows the mental patient from behind hacking away at her in the car. And all you see is, like, blood all over the car. Like, you never see the body, but, like, you see him swinging the axe back and forth back and forth detective cameron is kind of like slowly moving towards him with a shotgun out like kind of horrified and as he gets closer like he tells the guy to like drop the axe and turn around and as the person or thing turns around it's like this skeletal decomposing face and then like he can kind of gets jolted out of this nightmare and like he's in his house so that's correct but that's not actually how this scene starts the way this scene starts is way fucking cooler right What's cooler than cool? Fucking Tom Atkins in a white suit on the beach drinking margaritas. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just like a weird, it's, it's just a weird fantasy where he's like in a white suit with sunglasses on, chilling on the beach drinking cocktails, sees a blonde woman who's the girlfriend that he had like reverse coming out of the water. Yeah. And then it kind of cuts to all of a sudden like the flashback of the actual incident that night where he found her dead body. 
Also, the shotgun turns into an arm. Yes. Yeah. It turns into yep, her right. hacked off arm. Yep. Which was a nice touch. Yeah. Yep. And as he's waking up out of this dream, too, there's a pretty great, like, Barry Levinson style zoom where it's just kind of this cut between the zombie face and his face, but the camera's just, like, zooming right up into him. And there's a couple of moments in this movie, but I, I've always loved that, like, weird Barry Levinson style, like, heavy zoom directly into somebody's face that's a great like 90s aesthetic thing that i love well and it's uh, i was gonna say too it's a creepy dream too like yeah i do remember where he's on the beach and everything it was so kind of like sudden when it kind of cuts that scene where he's like on the beach in the white suit that i was like half expecting like this subplot of like some crime lord (laughs) (laughs) like who like is interested in the experiment But then, like, as it continues, like, okay, I get it. And, yeah, he, he's startled awake by the phone ringing. And as he answers the phone, he utters the single greatest line in this movie that I wish I was only fucking half as cool enough necessary to, like, utter this every time I pick up the phone, which is just picks up phone, thrill me. Yep, I marked down that I need to change the way I answer the phone. And start answering for all of the telemarketers. Just go, thrill me, and then hang up. Yeah, and so they call him. You can infer it's other cops calling him to the cryogenics lab on this university. So he gets there where they discover one of the bodies, and it's he's missing. The boy from 1959 is missing. The medical student's corpse is there. He, I love, like, he walks in, and he's immediately just ripping into all of the rookies and be like, you interrupted my damn, I was having a good dream, and blah, blah, blah. And like, did you, well, did you interview this person? Well, we haven't gotten around to it yet, sir. What the fuck are y'all? do like yeah he's just going around being the hard-ass like veteran detective there are two bodies and there's only one here now how many fucking fingers do you have one two okay what's the difference there just like giving them all kinds of shit um and there's also the classic fat coroner eating a sandwich as he's handling dead bodies every single time there's a dead body in this movie fat coroner is eating a sandwich i marked him down as also a big winner because he continues to eat and never gets capped and it was fucking great (laughs) i gave him credit for that yeah so they uh brings him into the movie kind of starts that whole side of the plot going was there anything else of this of note in this scene before we get to the sorority um, that's pretty it, but to talk about Atkins for a moment, I mean, he's one of these guys that's been in TV and movies for fucking ever, and he has played so many goddamn cops and detectives and military people. Like, he has just been in so many of those kind of roles. But, I mean, he was in The Detective back in the day with Sinatra, um, and then he ended up in John Carpenter's The Fog and Escape from New York. Uh, he was in The Ninth Configuration and Creep Show. Biggest thing that people are, like, really discovering him in now, besides, like, Lethal Weapon, um, is Halloween 3. I mean, he's, like, the main star of Halloween 3, and he is in full, just, like, don't give a fuck detective mode in that movie just like drink every bit of alcohol bang every woman in the movie snappy one-liners don't give a fuck but yeah tom atkins is great and apparently this is his personal favorite movie that he ever worked on so that's that's cool that makes me happy because it comes you can just from his performance alone you can tell he was having a blast in this movie (laughs) like yeah yep and i think Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think as he's giving the rookies the rundown about, you know, the whole two bodies thing, I think the scene ends off with him saying, now, a dead body that's been dead for 50 years doesn't just get up and walk on its own. And then it cuts to 
the dead body walking. The body, yeah. And it's yeah. Fuck, yeah. I love when movies do that. It's just fucking, <laughs> the, nothing has to be said, and it's pure gold. And uh, the thing, too, that makes me laugh is this corpse is just walking out in the middle of the road, yep. and no one, like, everyone's absorbed in their own personal worlds or just not paying attention. So they're just like, what the fuck ever? Yep. Don't care. Need to get laid. Don't care about zombie. Isn't this the first part, too, where you see Bradster's plate that says Bradster on his Mustang? I don't know. He's going to drop off Cynthia, I think, back to the sorority. Yeah. Because um, they drive right by the corpse. Yeah, they do drive by. Yeah. It. He's dropping her off. Right. At the sorority house. Yeah. And just kind of giving her the whole, like, oh, yeah, babe, like, I'll catch you later, like, blah, blah, blah. And she's just kind of rolling her eyes because she's already getting sick of his shit. But yeah, as she goes in, you see the corpse, like, making its way back to the sorority house because that's you know, exactly what it did in 1959 was go there to pick up its date. Yeah, and it, it's the same sorority house. Not that much has changed. We follow Cynthia. She's going back into the sorority, and you find out there that she's like the sorority president and all these little details, and she goes back up into her room, and she's changing to go to bed. Well, uh, something before she, while she's walking up the stairs to go to bed, one of the, one of the story girls is just like, Hey, I have all these things for an experiment. Can I store them in the basement? She's like, what are they? Brains, like human, human brains, brains and guards. And I was just, just like, two boxes of human fuck? brains. No big deal. Yeah. This is Chekhov's brains, Chekhov's door <laughs> and Chekhov's cat, like all in the same moment. There's like three Chekhov's guns, like all in <laughs> yeah. the same two minutes of this movie. It was fucking great. Because then it goes to another uh, sorority girl who's, like, kind of in one of the side rooms, and, like, she's trying to study, and you start hearing, it's like a, a false scare, you start hearing, like, this rapping at the door, so she, like, slowly gets up, and, like, the music's getting ominous, and, like, you're like, oh, shit, is the corpse gonna jump out at her? And she, like, she slowly opens the door, and it's, like, a false jump scare, like, this cat kind of just, like, jumps out of nowhere, meowing, and she's like, oh, you know, come on in, like, where were you, blah, 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 and she starts loving it, I forget the name of the cat. So, yeah, so they're just, like... All all these setups that happening and i would say the brains are like not just a Chekhov's gun but like they may as well be a Chekhov's nuclear weapon because like yeah it is like painfully obvious like okay yeah we know what's gonna happen here we follow cynthia as she's going back upstairs and like i said earlier she's kind of getting ready for bed i don't know if she's laying down or bef- right before she lays down like it's like as she's changing she hears yeah. the sound at the window yeah, she hears a sound out the window, and earlier on in the movie, because she's in the same room that the girl was in, the one who was killed by the guy wielding the axe, and the way that her boyfriend had gotten her attention was making, like, throwing stones at the window. So it's kind of set up in that same way, like, that same window's making noise. So she goes over there and kind of opens it up, except this time, the corpse from 1959 kind of leans in and freaks her out. And his head literally, like, opens up and just drops all these, like, slugs that immediately, like, slither away. And it's, like, such a sudden, weird thing. It might be a jump scare for some people, but honestly, like, it it was just kind of more just, like, that happened. (laughs) Yep. I love the slugs in this movie. Like, it's all either rubber slugs on fishing line with somebody pulling it, and then they just reverse that film to make it look like they're slithering forward. It's the same thing with, like, every time you see it shoot out of somebody's mouth. It's just a reverse cut where they're, like, dropping it into somebody's open mouth, and then they just reverse it to look like it's exploding out. But I just love the way that they move. I love the way they slither around the sound that they make. So anytime that the uh, slugs show up in this movie, it's fun. Yeah, and so the detective, Cameron, gets called 
again, now he's at this scene where they find the head split open. They find this guy. And Detective Cameron immediately is kind of like thinking that, oh, shit, this is the result of an axe wound and is kind of starting to get a little like freaked out by that. I think this is one of the few instances in a movie, especially horror movies, where the police officer knows what's up before the main characters yeah so you you normally have the situation where the main characters know what's happening and they can't convince the police of what's going on but in this instance it's it's the opposite so that's interesting as well as far as like breaking some of the tropes yeah we go to the next day where Chris and JC are just kind of like walking across campus, either coming to or from class and the frat brothers from uh, beta and I, <laughs> off topic for a second. I love like they keep saying like, are you beta material? I don't think you're beta material. <laughs> it's just like, that was just for whatever reason that made me laugh. But uh, they confront them and they're like, yeah, what the fuck? We told you to like not put the body on, <laughs> on the porch of, the sorority we wanted you to do it on this fraternity and they were like what are you fucking talking about and like so brad is getting kind of like confrontational with them and basically like jc kind of steps in between is like look yeah you put us up to it you wanted us to go to and find you a body and do this and i'll admit we did we went all the way into the lab and we found a body but we chickened out and we left the scene like we didn't take the body anywhere off to like the side cynthia was listening in and she gets it's livid with Brad being like, you fucking asshole got these guys to like go get a corpse and put it on someone's lawn. And like, she gets pissed at him as they're as JC and Chris are walking away. Brad, like a total douchebag kicks out one of JC's crutches and JC falls on the ground. And Cynthia like goes to help him and Chris and basically tells him off. Yep. This is also when you find out that Brad was in Cobra Kai and he learned the sweep the leg maneuver. <laughs> yeah, it totally was like a, it, it totally was like just so Brad again going back to him for a second. He might as well have been a Cobra Kai villain. Totally, he's also like a villain of an '80s snowboarding movie, like a ski yes. slope yes. elitist son of the rich kid kind of just like every '80s young adult douchebag villain from the '80s you can think of. This is Brad. So my dad owns a dealership. Yep. <laughs> These slopes aren't for you, bro. <laughs> Basically. So they uh, they walk away and Chris, of course, is like enamored with Cynthia. And this is kind of like their first kind of conversation together. And JC being a bro is kind of like, yeah, you two should get to know each other some more. And they walk off. Later on that night, we cut back to the police station with the morgue. And it's that same mortician, like the, the overweight guy just like eating a fucking sandwich again. Yeah, he's eating a sandwich again. This scene was both creepy and hilarious at the same time. Because, like, he's not paying attention at all. And you see in the background the corpse of the medical student just start sitting up. The imagery is pretty creepy. Yeah, Pamer looks rough. Yeah. What makes the scene hilarious is, like... <laughs> The mortician dude is not paying attention whatsoever. And this corpse literally gets up. And I, if this was any other horror movie, the corpse would have just like killed him from behind in like a jump scare fashion. But instead, what this movie does is the corpse just gets up and walks out the police station. And like, as it's walking in the hallway, a cop who's like looking down a report, like walks right by being like, you going to the game this weekend or something like that? All right, I'll catch you later, man. And like, never yep. looks up to see it's the corpse walking out. Yeah. Meanwhile, his, like, entire neck is tore open, and he literally has surgical scissors, like, hanging from his neck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Again, I marked this down as mortician badass because he's still eating. I don't know how you could eat that many sandwiches because this is like his fifth one in the fucking frame of two hours. And instead, like Derek said, of the body just absolutely destroying him, it was just like, yeah, I'll take a detour. This guy can live. <laughs> yeah. So it, it cuts back to the kids walking around campus and that's when... Cameron happens to come upon them and kind of grabs them and that's that's where he gives them the monikers Spanky and Alfalfa and um takes them in for questioning because the night that they were breaking into the lab the janitor saw them running out so based on the janitor's testimony they bring them in for questioning and ask them about you know like moving the corpse which they kind of just say like nah we didn't you know end up doing anything we didn't do anything with that guy's body and i like how the janitor his only line in this movie is screaming like banshees <laughs> and like yeah. starts yep. laughing to himself <laughs> detective cameron while they did break into the lab he kind of realizes like yeah y'all didn't take the body with you because the janitor saw y'all running away screaming like banshees and you didn't have a body with you but yeah just that whole screaming like banshees and then like later on i think it cuts back to the janitor and he's like back in that building kind of just like mopping the floor and he's still like talking to himself like screaming like banshees and he starts chuckling to himself and then right around the corner the med student pops into view and he's all zombified and the janitor starts screaming like banshee yep yeah i was like this is such a lame ass joke but it's just so well put together oh, yeah. and i was like I gotta laugh. Oh, yeah. And you knew that it was gonna happen yeah. the entire time. Like, you were like, yeah, this dude's gonna scream like a banshee before he dies. It's gonna happen. Yeah. And then they did it. So, from here, it cuts over to the sorority house again. Um, again, this is the moment that I mentioned earlier where they, like, call the payphone in the sorority house. Um, so, the Bradster calls and talks to Cynthia for a moment. And he's basically just a dick, you know. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, are you just mad that I was a dick to those guys earlier? And she's like, uh, yeah. So she kind of effectively, like, calls it quits with him. Meanwhile, it then cuts to the cat situation, which this is, like, the one plot hole in this movie that I don't know, like, why they didn't just edit around or through or out. You are shown the cat earlier. You know, it makes a noise at the door. The girl goes to the door. It's the cat. In this scene where the phone is ringing and it's bouncing between the different girls in the sorority house, like, who's answering the phone? Is anybody getting the phone? You hear one of the girls say something like, oh, should we tell Cynthia that what happened with the cat? And they said, no, it's just going to upset her. What happened with the cat? Like, there's no explanation about what happened with the cat. We're not shown anything. So what I gathered from that is, well, so continue to, like, the appearance of the cat, and then I'll explain, like, why I think they left that. Yeah. So it goes back to the same girl earlier, from earlier, who, like, opened the door and was startled. She's in the same side room studying again with her giant glasses. So she hears the sound at the door again, goes up, it's the cat, picks up the cat, and realizes the cat's fucking face is just, like, gross and annihilated. And then she freaks out. But that's it. It's like a zombie cat, and it's, like, yeah. done animatronically, and it's... yep. It's creepy looking, but it's also kind of funny because it's yep. it's like yeah, it, it's like a puppet you can tell, and it's like moving all weirdly and has a zombie face. So like you can infer that maybe the cat got got by one of the slugs, but at the same time, what happens to the cat from here? So she finds creepy cat, 
nothing happens, and the cat never comes back up in the movie again. The thing that I think they, like, I think the movie, whether it was out of laziness or they just forgot to edit these scenes or if they were just trusting the audience to suspend disbelief, I think what happened was the sorority girls discover the cat and they thought it was dead because it was like maybe it was just, it had died and before whatever slug creature like reactivated it or reanimated it, they assumed it was dead. So they like either left it out in the backyard or like buried it or something while it comes back alive. And that's when she picks it up and like she realizes, oh shit, it's the fucking cat. But there is a line. I don't know if either y'all caught it. I forget who says it, but someone mentions this like another thing happened at the sorority this time with the cat. It was just kind of one of those one small throwaway lines. So I kind of, my guess was kind of like either they called the police again and, or they just like the cat spewed out its thing. It went into the nerd girl and then it immediately keeled over and died again. And they just dealt with it. But I know there was a character that brought up the cat thing happening at the sorority again later on, but I don't remember exactly which character. I think it was just kind of off screen. But given to what happens to that girl later on... I don't think so, because we see, like, every time that somebody gets a slug, it's pretty instant that they, like, turn. Correct. Right? Yeah. It's not like it incubated in her for, like, the next two days, and then all of a sudden she becomes a zombie, right? But I think, like, the cat maybe was originally supposed to serve the same purpose as the dog that's about to show up. Yeah. And maybe they just, like, forgot about it. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, maybe so. I took it as... The cat had disappeared and they couldn't find it because when the chick picks up the cat before she looks at it and realizes that it's all fucked up, she's like, oh, whatever your fucking name is, cat, I'm so excited. And then she sees that it's fucked up and is like, oh, that's not normal. And then it cuts. <laughs> right. And the so scene just cuts out. If it was already presumed dead and she saw the same cat walking, I think she'd be like, wait, that cat's dead. I shouldn't pick it up. Yeah, I don't I don't know. My guess is kind of shot to hell because of like y'all are saying, like, it seems like people change pretty quickly. But that's the only explanation I had was I don't know. Maybe they wanted a a cat in the movie and that's how they fit it in. Yeah, maybe they like already had that special effect filmed and they were like, well, we can't waste this. (laughs) We just spent eighty thousand dollars on the cat animatronics. We can't cut it. (laughs) and i wrote down a note of again what is it with horror movies and fucking up cats like this is like this is becoming a trope unto itself on this podcast because this is like just wait till we get to reanimator that's all i'm gonna say this is like the third or fourth time this has happened to a black cat i think it's been a black cat every time too poor cats yeah that scene just randomly happens and is never resolved Yeah, but it cuts from that. You see the cops, they find the body of the med student again. He, like, made his way back down to the lab. And as they're, like, looking at him, you see more slugs slithering away from that body. And Cynthia then shows up at Chris and JC's dorm. And she says, you know, sorry, I looked you guys up, but, you know, I need somebody to come talk to. And I figure y'all are the only people I can trust, the only people that'll believe me. So then you see the three of them, like, walking through campus. And this was kind of a fun, like, bonding moment between the three of them. But she basically just tells them, like, all right, I'm going to level with y'all, but, like, I think these attacks are, like, zombies. And they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, huh, sure. And they just kind of are staring at each other. Like, JC's definitely giving her, like, shit. He's kind of doing the, like, like, theremin kind of thing. But there's a great moment where, like, Chris puts his arm around her shoulder 
And then, like, as she's kind of, like, going on and on, talking about how scared she is, she, like, leans into Chris. And there's a fucking great moment where, like, the two of them look at each other. And Chris just kind of does, like, triumph fist in the air. And JC's just like, yeah. And then as she, like, looks back up, they immediately, like, go back to being, like, cool guys again. And, you know, acting like they didn't do that. Again, just more, like, great chemistry between them. I think this was, this is what I'm remembering. I think she does kind of mention in a throwaway line, the cat situation. And then yeah, it's never it might have been her again. Yeah. I think it's her in the scene when she's talking to them. And then just, yeah, y'all are right. The cat is just never addressed after that. Yeah, fuck it. But yeah, as they're talking too, like once this happens, JC's like, I got you, bro. He's like, yeah, I'm a, I need to go use the bathroom. Like you two go on without me. I'll meet back up with y'all later. They walk away on their own and JC's like, go get her, buddy. As he kind of walks off on his own. And so Chris kind of walks her back to the sorority house where they run into Detective Cameron again, who over, like was kind of overhearing their conversation the entire time. Yeah, Chris walks her to the sorority house and she like asks him to the formal dance the next night. You know, and as she goes in... Cameron's like kind of hanging out smoking a cigarette and his line as as he walks up is just zombies exploding heads and a date for the formal this is classic spanky <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and even because I think we also skipped over a line earlier on like when they were in the cryogenics lab this isn't just some b horror movie like they yep. they do all these wink and nods to like yeah. exactly what they're paying homage to it cuts to JC and he's in the restroom which he's in the restroom in the stall but we see in a minute like his pants are up the whole time so was he going to the restroom or was he just getting out of the way but I, either way like cool bro like just hanging out in the bathroom that's fun just gra- drawing graffiti on the wall just go anywhere else See, that that's what i was gonna bring up i know that he was like helping out his bro and he said that he had to go to the bathroom but like he realizes he didn't actually have to go into the bathroom <laughs> yeah um <laughs> he's, he's just drawing more graffiti on the wall which by the way i love the fucking like striper rules graffiti yeah, <laughs> what? yeah. there is also one that says the monster squad lives which that's kind of an in joke because then fred decker's next movie the next year is the monster squad um well and i think too it might have just again been either he literally like took it seriously to the point where like yeah i'll literally going out in the bathroom <laughs> yeah. or it's just one of those things that like they were like yeah he used the bathroom but we can't show any nudity so uh leave the shorts on <laughs> like but yeah, as JC's in the restroom, the possessed janitor, Mr. Minor, he enters the bathroom and you kind of immediately like hear his body like hit the floor and then you hear all the slug noises. So yeah, JC like, you know, looks under the stall and sees all the slugs like slithering around. He kind of freaks out and drops a pack of matches. After some, you know, back and forth, he picks up the matches and lights the matchbook on fire and throws it down right as one of the slugs is running by and it, like, fries the slug. And he kind of sees, like, they make a point to show you, like, oh yeah, it was killed by fire. But right as, like, JC's trying to get away, he slips and falls and we kind of see all the slugs around him and one just kind of goes right into the camera so we can infer that JC gets got. I was very upset when that happened because I was like, not JC. Yep. And even after, like, he proved to be the badass who figures out what they're weak against for everyone. And it's like, man, all he did in this movie was be a bro and 
this is what he gets. He just tried to help. Yeah. And he got fucked by whatever ailment we can assume he has and fucking alien slugs. <laughs> yeah, alien yep. slugs. So now it goes to the Detective Cameron's house where he has that conversation with Chris. Which it this, is great. This, this scene, Evan, do you want to take it over? Because like, we were talking about this actually off mic earlier because I think this was one of your favorite scenes in the movie. Oh, yeah. It was one of the highlights of the movie for me. So... He's got Chris, and Chris is already kind of freaked out because he's like, why the fuck am I in your house? And he's just slamming bourbon and smoking cigarettes and (laughs) just keeps saying, like, these really hypothetical, weird sentences that are loosely related to what's going on. And Chris is just like, I don't know where this is going. And he just keeps being like, so what if I told you that my high school ex was murdered? And he was like, uh, and then what if I told you she was cutting so many pieces we needed two ambulances to bring her back. And he was like, uh... They found, they found her in the car and in the yeah, forest yeah. and down the road. Yeah. And he just keeps going and going and going. And Chris is just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, there's alien slugs and why are you drunk telling me all this shit? I love the part where he's like, yeah, and then, you know, I I hunted the guy down. I found him. You know, and when I went to confront him, I wasn't alone. Yep. And he was like, oh, do you have another cop with you? He's like, no, my 12 gauge. <laughs> yep. He, he specifically, like, three times in the movie is just like, well, got to get the 12 gauge again. Like, that's his way to solve shit. So he's just laying it down, and he's like, so, uh, detective, are we going to, like, do anything else besides you confessing to a murder? Or, <laughs> like, there's other shit going on. And it's fucking great. And it's just a good insight into the life of a detective who answers the phone and says, thrill me. Like, what he yeah. goes home to. That's what he's doing. He's just drinking and being like, fuck my life. Yeah, I love that his house is just, like, littered with pulp magazines. Yep. And crime scene photos and bottles of liquor. It's just, like, yep. the stereotypical, oh, like... It's- Great. cigarette butts and empty beer cans and shit laying all over the place he's a troubled detective with a dark past yep oh yeah and atkins is so good in this scene one other moment that we didn't mention earlier when he's called to the sorority house to check out the like corpse that showed up he kind of wanders around to the back of the sorority house oh, yeah. and sees this little cottage that belongs to like the den mother of the sorority and he asks a couple that's kind of standing there hanging out like hey what is this and they're like oh well that's that's where the den mother stays now and he's like oh and then it kind of triggers this flashback to like a body wrapped in plastic and him digging a hole and in this scene right now in his house where he's kind of confessing all this stuff to chris um he basically tells him like oh yeah i hunted down the axe murderer i fucking blasted him apart and then buried him in the backyard of the sorority house when it was just like an abandoned lot. And now that's exactly like where the Din mother's little cottage is built. Yep. And two, like, th- there's other, like, random scenes, like, when there are scene cuts to, like, random places outside or whatever. Every once in a while, you'll see slugs, like, slither around. Yeah. And yep. I think sometime before this, there were slugs, like, kind of slithering around the sorority house already. So after, like, he confesses this and you find all this out, it cuts back to the sorority house and this time to the uh, house mother's cottage area. And she's sitting there and just kind of, like, watching. She's actually watching a sci-fi movie, like a horror movie. Well, she's, she's watching Plan nine from outer space that yes that i wanted to ask you which movie it was which that's what is, it is again like totally totally a little little needle drop right there yep. 
And uh, all of a sudden, the dog starts barking a bunch. And then, like, you start hearing this knocking. All of a sudden, she's just, like, starts looking around. She looks at the floor. And the floorboards are starting to, like, split open. The knocking's, like, somebody, like, kind of coming from underneath the floorboards. Which, pause for a second. If I'm her in this situation, the minute, the minute one of those boards splits open and the knocking is continuing, I'm fucking out of there. Yeah. Like, the fuck out. Yep. Yep. Okay, so I've been hearing a continuous banging underneath my floor, and now my floor just split open. I was just wondering, should I stay here? I'll probably stay here. That's probably a good idea. And she, she not only does she stay there, the entire scene, she just stares at a dumbfounded sitting in the chair. And, like, yep. she could, there was no point, like, where she was cornered. There were, like, three ways out of that room, and she just sits there and lets it happen to her. Um, not a survivor in the least. No, well, I think it goes to show that that rocking chair was just really comfy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her fight or flight did not work. The dog, on the other hand, good to go. Yep. Yeah. Dog was good. So the body of the axe murderer comes out from underneath her floor with an axe <laughs> still, which makes yep. me wonder, Did the, I guess the detective buried him with the axe, which makes sense because he's trying to hide the evidence, but it's still pretty funny. Oh, it was such a great scene because the axe just comes through and she's still just being like, huh. Yep, That's I'll just sit here. <laughs> yeah, again, and there's like still like a full 10 seconds before like <laughs> that guy is up on her. So he comes up out of the floorboard and just walks right up to her. And then it shows the axe coming down and the scene cuts. So it's just like, well, she's dead now. <laughs> Puts that axe right into her head too. Yep. Nothing better than an axe murderer unless it's a zombified skeleton axe murderer. Yep. Yep. So for like the fifth time in this movie, Detective Cameron is called again and he flies over to the college. He kind of gets the rundown. They're looking around the sorority house, but the axe maniac has kind of he's taken to wandering the streets. So there are some police that are out looking for him and some kind of run into him briefly, but eventually they just, they corner him in an alleyway. Uh, something I wanted to note about those police, cause like they set it up to like those police see the bike. A, I was waiting for the body to grab the one guy who was in the passenger seat, like out of the car yeah. and kill them. But that doesn't happen. They just see him coming into view and they at first like drive off, but then like kind of they stop and they're like, wait a minute, we're police officers. And I'm glad it's them that call it in and they follow up with it. Like they actually kind of drive the axe wielding guy like into an alleyway and trap him as well. But yeah, Detective Cameron gets called. Yeah. Also, before that, while he's still at the scene of the crime, again, the mortician's like, yep, got another dead body. Looks really bad. Just eating this sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and that's when he finds out like, oh shit, the body of the axe murderer is like out and about. So he gets his 12 gauge. Yep. As you do. Yeah. So all the cops corner Dax murderer just in this alleyway and trap him. They all kind of like roll up in their cars and they're all drawing their guns on it. And Detective Cameron gets up and like moves to the front of the group and draws like his shotgun. Is this when he says a line like, I already killed you once, you son of a bitch or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. All the other police just like start blasting this guy. But it's a corpse, so that it just, like, blows a bunch of holes in him, and it's just kind of, like, standing there. But there's this one great moment where, like, it turns around and sees Detective Cameron, and, like, the corpse just kind of knows, and, like, the corpse grins in this really kind of fun, ridiculous way, like, oh, yeah, shit's about to go down. But yeah. then, yeah, Cameron immediately just, like, blows its head off with a shotgun. And, and a bunch of space slugs. slugs bust yeah. Out. yeah, yeah, a bunch of space slugs bust out and just 
scurry off like and but cameron sees them this time yeah all the cops see them and i fucking love the like maniac corpse depending on the like shot that they're doing it's either like a very thin performance actor in like a bodysuit or it's just a straight puppet but either way like i love the look of that thing Uh, it was fantastic it was really really good honestly like the the axe murderer is the creepiest part of this movie which is interesting uh because slashers usually don't like creep me out at all maybe it's the undead factor like when he comes back as a zombie it makes it creepier but honestly that scene too like when like back in 1959 like when he's slowly making his way towards uh the girl in the car that was also kind of creepy as well and again usually that doesn't bother me too much with with slashers honestly in this movie it was probably the only thing that kind of even mildly creeped me out so yeah we then cut to the next day and you see chris walking into his dorm with a plastic bag over his shoulder that's like clear like a rental tux then he asks some of the other guys that are kind of hanging around the dorm about jc because he never came back to the dorms the night before and they're just kind of like yeah i don't know we, we hadn't seen him so then we kind of have this montage of everyone getting ready for the formal dance um so it's like all the frat bros getting ready and all the frat girls getting ready and it's just the best montage of like giant hair and hairspray and mullets and people slamming shitty beers and girls running around in like bad 80s lingerie and just all the like typical kinds of things it was just a very like weird surreal throwback moment that just is so cliche now but was probably like completely normal in 19 fucking 85 when they probably filmed this movie yeah when he gets back to his dorm room he finds like a recording like a recording tape on the desk and he plays it and it's jc and but you can tell like jc's like he's kind of like almost out of breath you can tell something's wrong with him and he basically talks about how like yeah one of the slugs got me it literally crawled into my mouth i know it's in my brain i was able to kill one of them with matches they don't like heat heat is what kills them i'm going down to the boiler room because i figure it'll be too hot for them um so you know goodbye you are a great friend see you later man and really sad like it was actually a pretty sad recording that recording is super touching because not only is he just like i love you bro good luck with Cynthia, but there's like a brief moment where he even says like, I got up on my own and walked around on my own for like the first time ever without my crutches, Yep. but like, fuck, I'm about to die. Yep. I had to walk my ass to the fucking boiler room. Yep. Yeah. And so sure enough, Chris kind of makes his way to the boiler room, like with a flashlight, walks over and like, yeah, he sees JC's body like right by the furnace and there's melting slugs all around his head. Yeah. Again, JC was the like the hero of this movie like him and the detective but especially him because like he was just such a good guy and like a good character and believable that monologue going back to it again like that is such a good I'm your best bro and I need to tell you the truth monologue so it, it was kind of upsetting to see him go yeah especially since in any other movie like this any college movie any high school movie any other horror movie like this he would be the most obnoxious fucking character in the movie like on in any other movie that character would be the one that you can't stand but in this movie he's actually like the best person (laughs) yep the shitty version of jc is like franklin in texas chainsaw massacre yeah (laughs) (laughs) like like he's the shitty version of jc but uh but no yeah jc was the best yeah 
we now see the frat bros boarding their party bus and we see sad bradster who's like moping outside the sorority house because cynthia kind of told him off um so all the sorority guys are like or all the fraternity guys are just like all right well fuck it we're going and i like bradster's like yep he does that typical like Man, fuck that bitch. College frat guy, like, she broke up of entitled. Entitled And he, like, bullshit, throws an yeah. empty bottle, like, at the sorority, like, into the lawn. But, yeah, so then, like, it keeps cutting back and forth between him and, like, the frat bros, like, loading up in the bus. And while he's standing there, the den mother's dog, like, trots up to him and he's just like, Hey, dog, what's up? And the dog looks up at him and the dog is also zombified and immediately, like, pukes a slug directly into Bradster's mouth. It was kind of a creepy scene, but again, also fucking hilarious for some reason. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's, it's kind of one of those, like, Saturday Night Live things where, like, the dog, just like the cat, is clearly fake, and it's clearly just a puppet, but there's just something so hilarious about seeing, like, a zombie dog puppet just be like, <laughs> and then puke at a slug like a fucking rocket out of its mouth. If they ever remake Night of the Creeps, you know they're going to fuck this up and be like, we're going to make the dog and the cat look scary. And it's just like, no, that's not Uh, the fucking point. It's going to be CGI. Yeah. But yeah, Chris then shows up at Detective Cameron's house because, again, we can't bother this dude enough in the span of like two or three nights. I didn't put this together as a kid. It definitely took me like this most recent viewing that I actually thought about it and put it this together. But Detective Cameron was definitely about to like commit suicide. This is my favorite thing in the whole fucking movie. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's like laying on his couch and like spinning a fucking Zippo lighter. And then as soon as like you hear the banging on the door and Chris like, hey, open up. I got to talk to you. He gets up and, like, kind of, like, oh, god damn it. But you see him, like, get up and tear duct tape off from around the door. And then later, like, as they're leaving, you see him go into the kitchen and, like, turn off the stove. Yep. So he had just had all the burners going, like, letting gas in the house and was going to just blow himself up. Yep. Did not put that together yep. when I was a fucking kid watching this movie. He was actually trying to light the Zippo, and it wouldn't light. He was just flicking it, and it was sparking. Yeah, yeah. 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 Such a good, like, it was such a good touch, too, because they were very subtle things. Like, yep. at first, you're like, why the fuck does he have duct tape all around? Because, like, when that right. they first showed that, I was like, oh, he's protecting himself, I guess, from the zombies, question mark, by, like, duct taping? That's what I thought, was just, like, duct tape it, like, to keep the slugs from getting in under the door, yeah. Yeah, but then, no, yeah, like, as they're leaving, he's just like, oh, before we go, hold on a second, like, walks in, turns the burners off. He mumbles yeah. something. He's like, well, that's the way it fucking happens or something like that. He's yeah. like, and then after he closes the oven, he immediately grabs his 12 gauge. Yeah. Yeah. But as he opens the door for Chris, Chris just immediately looks at him and is like on the verge of tears and just says, they got alfalfa. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. While Chris is in his full getup, in full tux as well, like already dressed up and everything. Yeah. Yep. So then we cut back to the bus that was carrying all the frat bros, and the bus swerves on its way and crashes, like, right at the front of the sorority house, right as they were about to pull up. The, the like, dog st- steps into the way, and they swerve the bus and 
crash it. Yeah, and then the dog, like, walks up to the crash. You can tell, like, no one survived this wreck. Like, they're all fucking dead. Yeah, it's fucked. Yep. There's, like, arms and legs yeah. hanging out and shit. <laughs> yeah. But you just see the dog trot in through the busted windshield, and you kind of know it's about to happen. But then we cut to Cameron and Chris going to the police armory, because, you know... <laughs> this scene was my favorite. <laughs> again, Detective Cameron don't give a shit. He's just gonna be like, yeah, come to the armory with me, kid. But, um, who who's running the armory but Dick Miller... R.I.P. Just lost him. Yeah, another dude who I, I've seen in so many things. Yep, Dick Miller is another one of those that guy actors. He's, you know, most known for being in basically all of Dante's stuff. But he's the one, you know, working the police armory. And it's kind of fucking great because Cameron's like, oh yeah, we need, uh, you know, a shotgun. And, uh, you know, we need this gun. Oh, and, uh, you know, can you go get me that flamethrower there from the back? And he's just like, what? Flamethrower? What the fuck? You need a flamethrower? Sure, why not? All right, you got the paperwork? And he's like, here's my fucking paperwork. And just like, you know, holds him at gunpoint. (laughs) He's just like, give me the fucking (laughs) flamethrower. Well, and and I love how casual the guy working the army was about the flamethrower, too. Because he's like, you know, sometimes the the lighter gets stuck, which, you know, foreshadowing. But like, yeah, sometimes the lighter gets stuck on it and gets jammed. It's kind of faulty. But yeah, here's the (laughs) Yep, I fucking love it. And it's just a, like, Vietnam-era fucking flamethrower that's just sitting in the back for, like, nothing. It's not locked up. It's not strapped in anywhere. He just picks it up off the fucking ground. It's like, here it is. It's it's the same way that our police now are over-militarized. It was just surplus from Vietnam. That's all it was. And (laughs) nowadays, like, I'm sure, like, Detective Cameron would just go in and be like, oh, yeah, I need a 50 cal sniper rifle. Yep, and and a a minigun. And they would just be like, yeah, sure, here you go, bro. We just got this shit left over from Afghanistan. Yep, here (laughs) it is. Fill out the form. Yep. But do you have the paperwork for the tank? Because... Yeah. Yep. Dick Miller. Legend. R.I.P. Yeah. See you later, bro. That was a good scene. So, at this point, we cut back to the sorority house. The door is knocked, and one of the sorority girls is just like, Alright, somebody fucking answer the door. She walks up and opens the door, and it's Brad... And Brad is full zombie. And she just kind of <laughs> casually, again, just completely ignores him being full zombie mode. Yeah. And just turns around and just yells, like, upstairs, like, Cynthia, Brad's here. <laughs> so Cynthia goes outside. She's also not paying attention to Brad's appearance at all. <laughs> she just kind of casually walks past him and takes his hand and, like, leads him to the porch. And they sit down. And that's where she, like officially kind of breaks up with him like tells him like i don't think it's gonna work out blah 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 and as she's talking brad's sitting like beside her but she's kind of got her body turned like at an angle to where she can't see him at all but as she's going through this whole speech about like oh yeah things just aren't gonna work out and we need to break up his body is just like puking slugs just left and right just like <laughs> bleh, 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 just slugs like flying out of his fucking mouth <laughs> yeah yeah the thing that made me laugh so hard was when she grabs his arm and yeah. like drags him to sit down yeah. and the corpse sits down next to her just everything about that like the lack of awareness just makes that scene so funny yeah right as she finally realizes what's going on she turns around and screams and this is when like chris and cameron show up and you know immediately chris is just like all right like get away from him so she hops away really quick cameron fucking blasts him in the head and his head immediately just like bursts open with slugs just flying everywhere and chris starts 
torching Brad. Um, but immediately he just says like, yeah, don't take it personally, which is something that Brad said to him earlier in the movie. And um, at this point, all the other beta frat bros like show up you know, on the front lawn, all zombified. So now they're all kind of making their way to the house. So at this point, Chris puts the big giant flamethrower backpack on Cynthia and he grabs the shotgun and he's kind of psyching her up and telling her like, all right, we got to do this. We got to do this. Meanwhile, Detective Cameron like goes inside the house and he's just like immediately calling the shots. He's just like, you know, go out the fucking back, blah, blah, blah. Like shut all the doors, lock all the windows. But while he's doing that, one of the best lines in the movie. Yes. The good news is, hey, ladies, the good news, your dates are here. The bad news, they're dead. They're dead. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So they're blasting heads that are exploding with slugs, and Cynthia's torching them. Again, here's where we have Chekhov's door again, where Cameron tells the same nerdy girl who was studying to go close the door, and right as she creeps up to the door hand busts through the pane of glass and grabs her. So there's a couple of zombies coming in the back that Cameron's dealing with, and they're dealing with them on the front lawn with the flamethrower. By the way, uh, makeup guys Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger of, like, K&B effects play some of the zombie extras. And, I mean, you would know those guys now because they're, like, the guys that have done all the Walking Dead makeup, and Nicotero's directed, like, a lot of the big episodes of that show. But they're apparently, like, zombie extras here in the background. But... You know, they they fight their way through a bunch of zombies. Eventually, Chris and Cynthia end up cornered in a tool shed. Cameron gets cornered in the room, but there's a great fucking shot where he just goes, like, full rampage mode and just starts blasting everything in the room. But he is clearly on some kind of, like, merry-go-round Lazy Susan thing because the camera is, like, fixed to him while he's spinning around the room. Like, he's not, like... Spinning himself. Like, he's just on a gimbal, just, like, spinning around, shooting. And it's the best-looking shot. Chris and Cynthia end up inside the tool shed. And there's, you know, some bits where they're taking out some zombies with the gardening tools. They, like, you know, get one with the weed whacker. And uh, there's a part where they put the flamethrower, like, right up in one's head and explode its head. But the best is when the same fucker with the unibrow from earlier in the movie, that one, like, Neanderthal <laughs> guy, he grabs Cynthia through the wall, pulls her out, and as she's struggling to get up off the ground, Chris revs up the lawnmower, and right as Cynthia, like, gets away, he just says see you later dude and just rams the lawnmower right into him and it's this great pov shot of the lawnmower just blade spinning like right into this guy's face with like an animated red blood splatter yep. it's so fucking great eventually they kind of go ahead i was gonna say one thing so going back to again the unknown cat theory uh with <laughs> like in that room with detective cameron like when he tells that girl like go check the door and like that's when the zombies bust in he grabs the girl away and it's again it's that girl who like the one who either owned the cat or was most friendly to the cat he grabs her and like they get to the corner of the room and he's like protecting her as they're like coming in like and he's shooting at the zombies she all of a sudden will sits up and then she's zombified so that's why i i brought up my theory that like the yeah. cat was the one who did it to her but then again brings up the question of well why did it take so long for the slug in her tinky bait so yeah i guess you could just assume that like one got to her 
in that moment or so, but you don't yeah. see it happen. It just kind of eh, just happens, and they just kind of hand wave it away. Yeah, yeah. I figured because they were shooting so many heads and so many slugs, it was just like, yeah, one got her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They pretty much get through all the zombies. You know, right as Chris and Cynthia are kind of like catching their breath on the front lawn, they see a bunch of the slugs zipping into the basement. And Cynthia basically says, like, oh, shit, yeah, there's all those fucking brains in the jars <laughs> that are in the basement. That must be what they're going toward. And Cynthia is, like, fucking shell-shocked at this point. Like, she is clearly just, like, in a daze and, like, out of it. Cause she's, I guess, not murdered. They were already dead. But, like, she's just destroyed all these dudes on the front lawn of her sorority <laughs> house with a flamethrower. But then she immediately snaps out of it because when you see her and Chris, like, storming through the house on a fucking mission she's just right back in the zone but they get downstairs and they see detective cameron who's got duct tape across his mouth and he's like pouring gasoline everywhere and they kind of put the flashlight over in the corner and there's a giant pile of the brain slugs just all writhing and slithering in the corner and i love that animation that you see there cameron basically says you know get the fuck out good job see you later guys and he starts counting down basically counts down from 20 so cynthia and chris are racing out of the house i like that scene too because like he starts counting for chris yeah and as as they're running through the house like to get out of it chris is counting out loud as well like nine yeah eight also too i think because i tried again with the flamethrower and i think that's when the flamethrower jams and so then that's when like detective cameron's like see you around kid i got this cameron opens up the gas valve in the basement and we see all these slugs kind of like gear up as they're about to you know jump at him and right as all the slugs launch toward him flicks that fucking lighter and the house just goes up in a fireball and there's like a there's a delay because on the outside cynthia and chris and like now like the rest of the sorority girls and i guess other people have shown up and they're sitting there and because like it shows him throw the match cuts back outside and he goes like two one thrill me detective and then that's when the house blows up yeah yeah so that's pretty much it. They just sit there and watch the sorority house burn. And uh, Chris and Cynthia kind of have a tender moment and get that kiss in at the last minute. So which ending did you guys get? Because I actually got the alternate ending. That's what I was about to ask you. So the alternate in air quotes ending is what's most commonly on digital platforms now and that's what's on like the blu-ray to my knowledge i think that was the original ending and they didn't necessarily like that original ending so they then filmed the just plain happy ending where well it's not really a happy ending i guess it's just more straightforward where while chris and cynthia are making out the dog from earlier like runs up to cynthia and she bends down to pet it, and the dog immediately opens its mouth and, like, spits a slug at her. And that's cut to credits. The ending that's most common now is, like, the alternate ending. And that's the one where, as all the chaos is happening, and you see the fire trucks show up, and all the police trucks, or the police cars running around, it kind of goes over to the side of the burning building, and you see Detective Cameron, like, stumbling through the streets, and he's all, like, crusty and burned up, cigarettes still hanging out of his mouth, and then all of a sudden he kind of stops and just falls over. And as soon as he falls over, he bursts open, And then a bunch of the slugs, like, scatter out, and you see them kind of go under this wall and through a fence. 
and the camera pulls up and you see that it is a cemetery and you see the entire like cemetery laid out in front of you now in this big landscape shot and then all of a sudden boom big spotlight hits the ground and starts looking around and then we see the spaceship from the beginning of the movie kind of zoom slowly into frame and they're clearly like scanning with the spotlight the cemetery looking for the slugs and then yep. it cuts to credits. So that's that was the original ending that kind of wraps back around to the aliens and everything else. But for whatever reason, they ditched that and went with... The dog. Quick yeah. thing with the dog, yeah. So so that said, like, what ending did y'all have? I, I had the alternate slash original ending. And with as over the top as this movie is, I like that ending a lot more than just the dog one. Because I th- did then go back and youtube the original ending, and it's just not nearly as good. Yeah. Yep. I got the alternate one uh, as well. I didn't even know that there are different ones until just now. But the one that you described with the dog is a lot more of a letdown, I think. Because they just went through all of this shit to save Cynthia, and then you are left to just assume that she got fucked anyway. So, at least in this, Detective is still a hero, pretty much, but it ends on a, like, hmm, everything might not be okay note. I like that. Yeah, either either ending kind of infers that they didn't get all the slugs. Right. And it, either ending kind of tees it up for a sequel or whatever, and, you know, nothing ever came of it necessarily. Like, there's never any plans to make a sequel that I'm, I've ever heard of. They have always kind of talked about doing, like, maybe a sequel or a reboot or something. Like, for the last maybe 15 years, it's on and off, but... I don't know that there were ever plans necessarily. It just kind of did the thing that all horror movies did, which is just leave you on that last scare. Yep. Yeah, I did read around a little bit after the movie to kind of find out like what the actors who were in it, like Jill Whitlow and all them, uh, are up to now. And like, yeah, most of them have like did a, only a couple more things and then retired from acting. In recent years too, they've like made circuits around with like conventions, and there have been like joke lighthearted interviews of being like well if you know like jill whitlow like i think at one point and one of them that i read was like i would totally do a sequel if they ever did it we'll just pretend like like i blocked the slug from getting in my mouth from the dog really the only one who kind of really went on out of the, at least the leads was tom atkins right yeah did anyone else have a career after that no nah, that's pretty much it jc the guy that plays jc steve marshall he had some tv credits after this but not much jason lively that played chris he also had some tv credits he was in brainstorm a few years before when he was a little bit younger and that's that's a fairly interesting sci-fi movie directed by douglas trumbull who was like a special effects guy um but like christopher walken and natalie wood and louise flesher and chris rob Cliff Robertson, I mean, there's like a lot of big people in that movie. And the only other thing that he did that I will note is both he, Jason Lively, and Jill Whitlow that plays Cynthia, they were both in a movie together again the next year called Ghost Chase. And I had to like look and see what this movie was because the poster of this is just 80s as fuck. Jason Lively has a huge mullet in the poster for this but the imdb summary for this movie just says in an old hollywood mansion the spirit of an old family retainer inhabits an old grandfather clock when a movie company uses the mansion for a film the spirit inhabits the body of an alien and persuades the two filmmakers to track down an old house that will resolve a family scandal 
the fuck? I looked at the poster. I was going to say, I googled image searched it, and the little, like, almost kind of, like, rip-off Yoda. Yeah. Puppet thing. The poster is bananas. It's just them, like, in an old Chevy, and, like, a weird, like, haunted mansion in the background with this weird puppet thing, and... I looked at who directed this movie, and it's fucking Roland Emmerich. So that's, like, what the hell? This is, like, one of his first movies. But, yeah, Roland Emmerich as in Stargate, Independence Day, Universal Soldier, uh, Godzilla. Like, <laughs> the hell. But that's, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, everybody else that was in this movie is either already kind of a character actor that does a bunch of bit part stuff. Like, again, David Paymer or... Dick Miller, um, but Tom Atkins is really kind of the only person who had like a long career that was established that still went on to do some other stuff before he really kind of calmed down a little bit. I mean, he's still making stuff. He's still doing a lot of like indie horror, but at the end of the day, I mean, he's he's kind of chilled out a good bit. He does a lot of convention appearances now. So you're telling me that Bradster didn't have a career after this? Uh, nope. Bradster, uh, Man. let's, let's see, Alan Kayser, um, no, no, he did not have a, uh, <laughs> <Damn>. career after <laughs> this. That's disappointing. The Bradster. He was such a good, yeah, he had such a good performance. Another thing, like, before we wrap it all up, because this was, was something I'm curious to hear y'all's insight on what you think, because as goofy of a movie as this was, one of the things we do try and talk about are fears and phobias that these movies touch on. What the fuck fears and phobias do you think this movie touches on? I don't know. I think it's got a lot. You've got aliens. You've got zombies. You've got slasher films. You've got kind of like what we touched on before, you know, your your fears of not fitting in in college and not having the experiences that everyone has. I think it touched on a lot of different things, and I think there's a lot to be said in a 1980s B-comedy horror movie. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's kind of the approach that I'm trying to take with this entire show like for me personally it's just find the actual human elements underneath the genre trappings you know underneath like the monsters underneath the murder the mayhem what are the actual human fears that are present in the movie whether like textually or not um and you're right like this movie completely hits on the whole idea of like fitting in being part of a community you know i don't think it's on accident that we see all of the greek life people become zombies at the end right like this movie kind of keeps the main characters as individuals and not losing their identity to like this larger zombie plague you know but they definitely struggle to fit in and they have these fears of like not being accepted and you know the detective obviously like has tons of guilt and grief with what he had to deal with earlier just the like sense of loss not not only the sense of loss of like oh somebody that i love died but also just the loss of like his potential that you know he could have gone on to do more things his life could have taken a completely different turn if that night had not happened we now see where he is and he's living like in this shithole and drinking himself to death like literally about to kill himself at one point because like he's just experienced like a huge loss over all these years that he's never been able to kind of rectify and learn to like move on from so yeah i mean like i feel like even though this movie is very goofy the monsters aren't necessarily like the scariest thing about it it's a lot of that deep-seated like anxiety and stuff that's present in those characters that really lets us connect to them and understand like where they are within the movie 
And then on top of that, we're going to heap on a weird maniac killer corpse and brain slugs and all this other stuff. Yep. Yeah. If it wasn't done in the way it was, I I brought this up in the past with a couple other movies. In the hands of someone else, this movie would have been a gigantic mess that would have been forgotten about in the 80s. Yeah, you, you have to have somebody who has a love for the material that this movie is riffing on specifically and somebody who's willing to like be cheeky about it. You know, like I said earlier, I kept saying, this movie knows what it's doing, 100%. If you had had somebody come in and, like, try to adapt this material from a completely serious standpoint, it wouldn't fucking work. Oh, no, absolutely not. It it wouldn't work. There is one thing that I did want to bring up, because we talked about the whole mysterious cat situation. Was it ever explained how the frat dude from 1950 is taken into the university? No. Okay, because it's like <laughs> the detective finds the chick and she's all, you know, hacked up and then they just have him somehow, but they were at the same place, so I didn't know if I missed something there. Nope, you didn't miss anything at all. It just was kind of one of those things that like hand wave, he someone picked him up and they kept him on ice for all these years. Yeah. Maybe they were they were aware that something alien was happening to him or whatever but yeah i don't know but uh yeah any other final thoughts about night of the creeps uh good movie i'm glad that i was invited to watch it and join the podcast it was a lot of fun thank y'all for having me on no problem yeah it was great i like any time that we have guests on and i'm looking forward to doing it more often so good times very good on that note we are watch if you dare the podcast we are on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Our socials on Facebook and Twitter are at Watch If You Dare. Shoutouts to your little brother, like usual, uh, Aaron. His name is Jesse, but he is AKA Party Gator, and you can just find all his stuff on Bandcamp and all that. He does our opening and closing themes, and uh, yeah, I think that's gonna be it for us. So, Sally, bye, Bradster. Thrill me.